and welcome to IOM3 Investigates, the podcast series of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. We are one of the UK's major science and engineering institutions and our activities are focused on the promotion and development of all aspects of the materials cycle. These include the science, design, engineering and technology of materials, minerals and mining and their practical applications. We facilitate qualifications, professional recognition and development, share knowledge and provide networking services to a global membership and wider community. We hope you enjoy our podcast series. Hello there, I'm Colin Church, the CEO of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining, and I'm delighted to be introducing this episode of our new podcast series, IOM3 Investigates. In this series, we take a look at issues of relevance to professionals working in materials, minerals and mining, tapping into the knowledge and experience of our members and other experts. In this episode of IOM3 Investigates, I am joined by Linda Barron, co-founder of Barron Gould, a materials and manufacturing focused design studio in central London, and Adam Reid, external affairs director at Suez UK Limited, a major waste and water management company and fellow of IOM3. Linda studied fashion design at Central St Martins before working for luxury fashion brands in London, Milan and New York, and she's consulted to a varied roster of international goods and services clients where product improvements can be unlocked through innovative use of technology. Clients have included DuPont, Herman Miller, Kodak, Motorola, Philips, Gillette, ExxonMobil, UK Sport and the Royal Parks. Linda is also a founding partner of the Materials and Design Exchange, a partnership between IM3, the Knowledge Transfer Network and a number of design-related bodies. Adam is responsible for Suez's interaction with central government, stakeholder management, thought leadership and industry communications. He's an experienced waste management academic and consultant with over 21 years of sector experience in the UK and overseas and he sits on the editorial boards of several leading academic journals in the resource and waste management world. Together, we will be looking at design for end of life, the importance of better product design choices in enabling a more circular and sustainable economy. Adam and Linda, hello. 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 Thank you very much, both of you, for joining me today. First of all, I'd like to get our two guests to introduce themselves. Linda, can you say a bit more about your involvement with this topic, please? Yes, thank, thanks very much, and thanks for inviting me. In my work as a designer, uh, we've worked with many different sectors. We've worked in uh, with product design, with in the construction industry, with interior products, and um, we've worked a lot in manufacturing. So we understand, we've learned to understand how manufacturing works and how it interacts with design. And that's been um, an interesting journey for us. I must say that until I really became a founder member of, or founding partner of MADE, Materials and Design Exchange, um, I hadn't really become very involved in understanding the end of life of products. Designers typically don't get involved in that kind of thinking. So when I was invited by the Institute of Materials to talk about design interaction with material science, what happened was we landed up actually deciding to form an, a network group, which then became part of the Knowledge Transfer Network, part of the Government Agency for Innovation. So in doing that, we, over the years, and quite early on, I must say, I think even in 2010, we were looking at design for disassembly, sustain, the issues around sustainability and the circular economy. And um, that was really where my interest has started in this. And the journey has been fascinating since then. 
Thank you very much indeed. Adam, I guess you could say you come at it from exactly the opposite end of things. Do you want to say a little bit more about that? You're absolutely right, Colin. <clears throat> I think uh, I'm a geographer by training. Um, so I spent, spent my early years trying to work out why the environment and people couldn't always live together uh, harmoniously. And, and it was from there that I, I did a, a PhD in waste management policy and why we had an implementation gap around you know, aspirational targets for recycling and actual performance uh, at the local level. Following years in consultancy supporting mainly local government in some of their decision making and strategies, both here in the UK and globally, um, I then went to work for, for Suez. And it's the last three years that's really kind of opened my eyes to, to sort of packaging and materials and brands and the whole issue of how do we get stuff post-consumer back in to productive life and and really that's opened up a, a can of worms because now I get to talk with the IOM3 and uh, you know I'm a fellow of the RSA and I'm heavily involved with the Chartered Institution of Waste Management and some of the debates today I mean we're light years from where we were 20 years ago when I first came into the sector you know talking about circular systems recycling content consumer behavior I mean this is a this is a new dawn and and it's so exciting being able to sit here today you know sharing some of my experiences and I I'm on a learning curve you know there are new materials and new issues facing us every day and, and you know here we are looking at covid which is which is completely changing the uh, the global market and many of the materials we have to handle so as a as a waste management operator or a recycling operator at Suez yeah we run those facilities where materials are coming either post consumer or, or post industry and, and the idea is that we're helping to change the material or to cleanse the material or to process the material so you can put it back into secondary and tertiary lifetimes but that can be really hard depending on the quality of the material we handle so being involved in these discussions today working with big brands understanding the the designers issues you know listening to linda you know what's happening at the front end of that picture if we if we don't understand that we can't build the right infrastructure and equally if linda doesn't understand how we see the world you're likely to get the, the badly designed materials coming onto the market that make it hard for us to do anything other than to burn or landfill them neither of which is really acceptable thank you that's really helpful and interesting i guess the topic called the the phrase that people use increasingly in this space is circular economy. Do you want to say, Adam and then Linda, a little bit about what you think that means in this kind of context? Oh, circular economy is a that's a great phrase. Ellen MacArthur, uh, wraps plastic uh, packs have all have all looked at you know what does circular mean. I, I, let me try and simplify. I I think the idea is that we keep materials that are in our products, services, packaging, whatever, alive for as long as possible. And that means keeping that material in a format where you can use it again. So whether it's a refillable milk bottle or it's a recyclable aluminium can, it's putting that material back so it can be productive in the economy. And ideally, without an awful lot of effort being required to keep that material in use. We lived in a you know a linear economy for so long. You want to make, consume, and discard. And I think the circular economy is all about trying to understand that we will run out of resources very soon if we don't close that loop and put more of that secondary and tertiary material back into productive use and, and, and soon. Thank you. Linda, one of the things that it seems to me anyway, from, from where I sit, and, and my background is rather more similar to Adam's than to yours, that the circular economy is a, a concept that's talked about 
a lot by resource and waste management people. Is it something that's really talked about or understood by designers? What what does it mean to designers? I think they talk about it. (laughs) Understanding it, I think, is something something else. But there's certainly, I mean, as Adam just referenced, I mean, the the last decade, there's been an incredible interest in it. There's an interest in sustainability, in what's happening with our climate. It's a tough question because... It's about education. It's about people coming together and understanding the beginning of the journey, understanding what happens at the end of the journey. And that typically is not present as a strategy for many processes, companies, sectors. So consequently, education is what we need to be thinking about. And we have done some of that work with the materials and design exchange by introducing material scientists to designers. It might be worth mentioning at the moment, at this point, that different sectors and different professions have different ways of working. Materials, well, scientists generally, people on that side of the equation, if you like, uh, see things in a very straight line. They work in a focused way, in a sequential way way, if you like, knowing where they're going. Designers typically are creative, don't necessarily know where they're going, but will go with the flow and have a more agile mindset. When you bring the two together, which is what we were doing um, in those early years, um, it was very clear that there was a lot of education between the two, the two communities. And I would say that not only that, but then when you look at the other areas involve process, manufacturing, engineering. Everybody has all of those um, sectors have different ways of approaching their discipline. Bringing them together to understand the issues that they have is really the task. And some companies do it better than others. Many more are doing it. Some sectors do it better than others. But there, well, there's so many issues to discuss around this. But I do think it is about people getting together to understand each other's ways of working and looking at the common goal in the end, from from the concept of product to actually what happens at the end of life of the product. And if designers don't understand and don't visit landfill sites or recycling centers or anything like that, if they don't understand what happens then they can't be expected to choose the right materials, understand the right processes and make the product look appropriate for its end of life. Do either of you have some particularly sort of good examples or perhaps I should say bad examples of where it's gone wrong, the sorts of things that you've seen either receiving in the bins or leaving the design studios? Oh, a lot. I would <laughs> I would quote actually the fashion industry I'm afraid to say I worked in the fashion industry for many years albeit at the luxury end but I have quite an understanding I worked as a buyer as well so I worked at the retail end and I worked in factories at the manufacturing end next to machines so the fashion industry really is very responsible as I think Adam might agree for an incredible amount of stuff that goes to, well, it's recycled, but, you know, goes to landfill. What's happening now with the pandemic is an incredible opportunity for fashion to change. And indeed, there are calls for it to happen. I mean, it's happening already, has been very quickly, actually, into the pandemic. The fashion industry is an industry that moves very fast. And that's part of the problem is that it's seasonal. So you're in, you're out. You know, it's a tough business to be in. There's not much time for these kinds of conversations. But that isn't to say there aren't people doing it. But I, I think there's a long way to go. 
construction industry is another one which we can maybe talk about in a bit. And if you want an example of who does it really well, I would cite um, Herman Miller, who I'm sure you probably, your listeners, know of as the US-based office furniture company who have been looking at issues of sustainability. I mean, I worked for them actually in the 90s. And in 1994, they launched the Aeron Chair, which now is totally able to be disassembled and cycled. Well, there's some great examples there. I mean, I just, from my own perspective, I mean, I I actually think the construction sector are not perhaps as bad as as some might give them credit for, just because they do an awful lot of their own on-site reuse and repurposing within big big, big business. But if we pick a few few of my favourite examples, I mean, I love a good coffee pod. You you kind of think that's that's not really a difficult issue, is it? But actually, it tends to be more than one material. And and it ends up, you know, because it's small, it kind of ends up mixed with lots of other stuff and before you know it it's kind of infiltrating all parts of my system and you're kind of like oh i need to capture that separately early so there's that i mean tetra packs are great you know a great advancement in in materials over the years um a bit like you know plastics are now being you know hounded for being you know the problem uh that we all face and yet they were the savior for many years i think the thing about tetra pack is it's very difficult to separate which is why there's very few recycling facilities anywhere in the world that can handle it but if you're getting in one of those waxy film containers they're very effective at the job they're designed for but they're really hard to handle are they a, are they a carton are they a card are they an aluminium strip have they got a plastic layer i mean which which material stream should they go to if you ask my mum she wouldn't know if you ask my machines they'd give up halfway through and you'd end up in in multiple locations in a in a recycling site so i, th- I think there's there's lots of examples over over the years where we've designed something that's really fit for purpose but it's not been fit for an evolving recycling landscape where we then want to capture that material because we've realised that, you know, that's the right thing to do from a carbon perspective and from a resources perspective. And actually, now we've got to try and undo all of that glue and all of that composite layering. And so, you know, m- many of the industry experts today are, are calling for, you know, monomers or simplicity. And, and actually, they might even prefer something that's less aesthetic and even less functional if they knew that it was going to go round and round more times and, and would probably live with that, you know, that, that less than perfect. And I think that's quite an interesting step change now that we're, we're recognising that design for reuse or repurposing or refill is a very different design requirement from just design because it looks good, it, 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 it protects the product and, and, and it will catch the eye. Um, on a shelf somewhere. Linda, you've done lots of work, as you said, uh, with different companies and organisations thinking about some of these things. And you've already said that education and connecting people is is really important. Mm-hmm. Are there any other learnings for you from that work about how to make this design for end of life thing live better? When I say we, this is the, the, the made team materials and design exchange team, which I should explain, um, involved at that time the Design Council, the Crafts Council, the Institute of Engineering Designers, the EEF. We had a, a lot of different people around the table and the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. How could I forget? So in looking at where we should be focusing our efforts, um, we ran an event called Design for Disassembly, I think it was run in 2010, and we invited um, speakers from, it was only 20-minute segments, but from Nokia, from Arup, the uh, construction engineering company, and from 
somebody from Oxford Brooks because they have a department there which looks at the end of life of vehicles. And we wanted to hear their thoughts about design for disassembly. And it was really quite new as a concept then. From that, we realized that this was an untapped conversation, if you like, that designers needed to be involved with, even if manufacturers were already uh, thinking that way. And we were lucky enough to have a contact at Jaguar Land Rover, who was working at the time on looking at recycling of aluminium, which was at an early stage of that development. It was a government-backed initiative, which is very well documented now, which resulted in all of their cars being made in aluminium and not using um, steel anymore. So, um, and in doing that, we started to talk about other materials. This resulted in an amazing project, which took place at the Institute's Grantham facility. And what we decided to do was have a practical demonstration to look at what happens from the beginning to the end, including all of the stakeholders, if you like, people from the beginning of the process and people from the end of the process and some of them in the middle and some people who had nothing to do with the process at all. What we did was we had um, the whole first year of the Royal College of Art Vehicle Design student body. That is a department from which an awful lot of well-known vehicle designers where they start their careers. I mean, I'm talking globally. We had 50 of them on a coach, came up to Grantham and Land Rover were terrific. They gave us six parts of cars. We had two car seats, two dashboards and two doors. First of all, we had a little conference and we had people talking about recycling, what happens to the end of life of vehicles, which most people know about the crushing, but don't know about how they're shredded and separated in order to regain whatever materials can be reused or recycled. We had about at least a half a dozen people from Jaguar Land Rover, engineers as well as um, a couple of marketing people. We had an anthropologist from UCL. The whole team, I think there were about 60 or 70 of us. So once we'd have the conference in the morning with a little bit of background um, understanding of what we were looking at, students were divided into groups and they were tasked with taking apart two car doors, two dashboards and two car seats. And we recorded their comments um, and it was absolutely fascinating. The student, they did land up saying it was the best day that they'd had out, but they were horrified basically. And that was the learning. They couldn't understand why there were so many different materials why there was so much of it, I think the epitome of the day was actually looking at everything that was in the dashboard of the Evoke. It was amazing. They just kept saying, why? Why do we need all these parts? Why are there 11 motors in a car seat, which apparently there were in that particular car seat? Anyway, the conversation went on. So not, um, it, it, it was absolutely illuminating and made one realise and made Land Rover, Jaguar Land Rover realized that they really needed to have people communicating. So I can say more about the process of that, but that particular exercise was amazing for us collectively to have an understanding. Yeah, sounds like it was a really illuminating and educational and enjoyable event to do. 
Adam, did you want to say anything about uh, the receiving end, as it were? Well, absolutely, because that example, I mean, A, I live very close to uh, Jaguar Land Rover up here in Warwickshire, and, and so I know them quite well, and, you know, we've been part of their supply chain for a while. But what's interesting is it's the immersive nature of the engagement that actually, you know, as a behavioural specialist by training, that's where I'm quite interested in, because I think, you know, taking people to see the reality and then trying to collaboratively work through, well, why is it like that and what could it be like? is how you change the world. Um, you know, let's be honest, it's it's not somebody sitting in a dark shed, is it? You know, that, that's not going to be the future. This is about understanding supply chains. And so in the last 18 months, two years, um, since the discussions around extended producer responsibility and consistent curbside collections have started to moot themselves with government, we've, we've seen an upturn of interest from brands. And these are brands that historically maybe aren't even serious clients here in the UK, but they've, they've come to us because they want to understand the process, just, just as Linda's gone through there. And so, you know, I'm taking designers, material specialists, procurers around our materials recycling facilities, around our uh, sustainable fuel sites, around some of our um, CA, you know, HWRC, the tip, if you like, to see what happens once you've chucked something in a bin somewhere. And, and they've gone, we had no idea. You know, if only we'd have known that five years ago when we designed that thing, because now we know we can't get it back. And now actually the cost to us is going to be either de- redesigning a very effective product or package to make it more easy to capture, which may have a problem with the, you know, with their consumers who like what they buy and, and don't don't want change. That's always a risk here. Or they go, oh, we're going to have to come up with something entirely different. And there's a risk there again that, you know, consumers walk away from brands. So but what they've said is, is that, you know, we, we've got these ideas and, you know, I've, I've seen the, um, the seaweed pouches for, for water at the end of the, uh, the, the London Marathon is a great example of a material innovation. And, and they go, well, can we come and see what happens to them? Because will they degrade on the on the street, or are they going to get? Ca- are you going to come and pick them up? And and if they do get picked up, where do they go, and what process might they go through? And so, I'm reveling in the opportunity for that supply chain to really have proper conversations about. Well, if I change this, what happens to you? And if if you do that, what what's the impact on me? And more importantly, the legislative overview that's starting to come into into sight. Well, how does that impact all of us? Because, you know, China closing markets for mixed grade plastics is one shock to the system. Government putting a, a tax on, you know, low plastic content in, in plastic bottles going forward is another shock to the system. Brands having to pay for the entire life cycle costs of their materials means that they're going to think about redesigning them so that they're easier to capture. Now, all of those things are happening at the same time. If you don't have a a thorough, open, honest conversation about what we could do and what's in the best interests of everybody, UK PLC, global PLC, my mum, then then we're going to end up with some really odd solutions that might not work for very long and we have to keep reinventing the world. This is a great opportunity for us to to have exactly the immersive experience that Linda's been talking about in a bigger than than one business, one supply chain. This is sectoral. We, We need everybody coming together over the next 18 months to have some of these really 
deep and thorough on-site discussions, and I accept that post-COVID they'll be on-site, but at the moment I'll settle for showing somebody some pictures of a site if they want them, because we need to start moving forward on this collaborative understanding and appreciation. Linda, do you think that there was any traceable practical impact from that event? Did JLR go away yes, and yes. redesign its evoke? Or... Absolutely, absolutely. Um, we ran that event in the summer of 2012. We then had further visits with them. We went to one of their dealerships to understand what happens. And then we ran a conference, which we call the White Water Conference, where, which is the idea of getting on a raft and not knowing quite where you're going. But up at uh, Tartar at their headquarters in Rotherham, and we had a seminar and a workshop. We had bags of shred and material scientists and designers understanding what they were and where they came from. It was another education. I mean, I can talk more about them. There is a lot of information about these events that we ran. But um, the final one that we did was actually a presentation at Gaiden to a lot of the folk from Jaguar Land Rover to present what was called the May Project for End of Life of Vehicles, Design Innovation for the Circular Economy. We ran it at the Heritage Centre in Gaiden. So it was really the presentation of the project report, all of which is available to engineers and designers. To explain really, if you imagine that the process, and this is true for a lot of um, the ways of working in terms of development of products, I think it would be probably from food to fashion to construction to vehicles. But anyway, you start off usually with a concept, maybe from the marketing team, the Evoke. I, I think it was a, a brand inspired by Victoria Beckham. Designers kind of get a bit of their cue from that kind of briefing. So they're thinking in that way. They're thinking of a visual, what will it look like? Um, that's what designers do. It's what architects do. They have a vision. They start drawing. But then when it actually comes to making something it, in the car industry, goes then to the engineering department, design engineers. I mean, they, you know, designers are engineers very often and engineers are designers. Um, who then say, well, you know, you can't have it like that, or maybe you should maybe do it like this. And and then it goes into manufacturing where corners need to be cut and pennies need to be shaved off. And so there are changes there as well. With those people typically do not communicate as much as they maybe should in a lot of industries. I'm obviously choosing my words carefully here. But then when you go into production, I mean, these things, every, every penny does count. And that's probably true for, for most industries. Products do get changed on the way, but they don't necessarily get changed um, considerations necessary for thinking about end of life. Product is launched and the marketing department, you know, get back on board with it. I mean, I think that's a reasonable, probably assessment of how, how it works. So our suggestion was, well, everybody should get together at the beginning and there should be a different way of collaborating so that you're not looking at the typical way of working consecutively through as i would we were taught working with big american brands through through gates you know so that you know your the journey you're going on and you know that that's the next gate that's the next gate and that's the, so now our whole thinking which of course now is a, around agile methodology, as they say, um, has to be very fluid and flexible. It really needs to be concurrent, thinking 
about where you're going needs to have everybody on board. We've talked about different product categories. We've talked a bit about fashion, construction, automobiles, packaging. For both of you, is there uh, an area where this kind of thinking is more important than others, or is it something that we should be looking to have across all kinds of product categories? It's a really good question, Colin, because I think there's been such a focus on sort of plastic, for example, as just being a, a bad uh, a bad material that sometimes I think we can get hijacked with getting into silo mentality. And the reality is I think the principles of good design should fit across all sectors and the, under, the appreciation of material and its ease of reuse, repurposing, refillable, whatever, um, needs to be understood in every sector because if we don't, we'll find that you know decarbonising the UK is working and then suddenly the new, the new problem is here on the left because there's a sector that's been considered marginal, let's say, and then suddenly its footprint starts to grow um, because everybody else is, is getting some of, the, some of the issues right for a change. So, I, yeah, I think we need some principles that are overarching. I think we need a, um, some common language. I think Linda mentioned that, you know, right at the beginning, a common language about how we talk about some of these things because... You know, some people want to decarbonise, some people want to become resource efficient, some people are driving a circular economy. They're not all the same thing, actually. And, and, I, and I think if we were serious about decarbonisation, then of course we're going to go after the power industry and the power sector. It's about heat, power and electricity. But equally, transportation has a massive footprint. Um, and you'd actually go, well, recycling's kind of far less important in those spaces. But a small change in the design of some of the activity will have a massive impact, much more than potentially a, a change in, in, a, in, a, in a smaller sector currently, let's say. So I think we need to embrace the big picture across sectors and materials uh, and, and understand our, our place in that. And I think, you know, then you can take a, a great case study from the Jaguar Land Rover example, and you can go, well, how do we apply that to the chemical sector? How do we drop that into, um, you know, what's happening around compostable packaging, for example, which could become the next big problem um, in terms of the packaging space. So I think there's a lot we can learn, but that means we need to use common language and and common examples that that have traction. Yeah, absolutely. As you were talking, Adam, I was thinking of that another project we worked on was actually lightweighting, which is actually taking weight as well as material out of, we work with Virgin looking at aircraft seating because then their energy use is less because the weight is less. And that is, I think, another interesting way to look at helping at least the, the costs of energy, not about end of life particularly, but it was related to it. I think designers don't understand enough about what things were anyway. We did another project called Right Waiting. Generally speaking, designers don't know a lot about materials as much as they could and should. One of the big trends, mega trends, if you like, that's out there alongside climate issues and sustainability and so on is um, the digital agenda, Industry 4.0 and, and so on and so forth. And it struck me in when you were talking that we ought to be saying a little bit about the role that perhaps that can have in helping some of these connectivities. You know, if you can describe your entire product life digitally, then maybe you can interrogate it a bit more successfully, a bit more intelligently, if you like. Do either of you have any 
perspectives to offer on that? Yeah, Colin, it's a really good question because I think the idea of, you know, material passports, for want of a better phrase, and this idea that you can track material or, or components of products on a journey throughout its lifetime would certainly, A, enhance the value of the material and probably make those of us in the chain far more likely to want to talk to each other because we start to see where the blockages are. We start to see where the leakage is from the system. We start to see the, the bits that are hard to deal with. And so that's when you then focus that collaborative you know, mindset, if you like, on how do we solve that little part of a problem? Because we've now recognised that is the problem. At the moment, you know, you have to guess at where the issues might lie because we're not really looking uh, at it in a holistic manner. We're just going, well, I need some new, some new recycled material. Um, where do I get it from? And off you go to the global market and you pay your price. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, products, brands taking more of a, a life cycle ownership model that would open their eyes to the way that they design. It would open their eyes to the materials they use. But I also think it would then enable them to produce those those supply chain partnerships that can really open doors and change change the game in terms of carbon or, or efficiency. So I look at some of the... Um, some of the recent innovations that Suez have been doing with Lionel Bassal, the, the you know the large plastic bottle manufacturer, and we're now co-investing in sites and understanding each other's specification needs to ensure that we give them a feedstock so that they can up their recycled content on, in global bottles, and actually that's enabled us to understand each other in lots of other ways as well. And and I think the more that you can track material the more we can understand how it gets used, how it's maybe abused, where it's failing, where a substitution would be an obvious opportunity. So I'm really in favour of sort of those big databases and and the opportunity for AI to play a role in where is this material going and, and where is it being used and for how long is it in the use phase and how long is it in transition? Yeah, more data, more insight got to be good for, for all of our sectors. Yes, Adam, I think that will help concentrate designers' minds very much <laughs> be brilliant um, yeah one of the things I think is important is um, what I think is called virtual teardown technology so that you can plan on a production line and before how products can be disassembled because manual separation is incredibly expensive and we're talking about joining and sticking technologies gluing if you like how things are put together so that they can be taken apart so we've been talking a bit about the problems that we can see both of you have said that you're picking up quite a lot of more appetite from from people to, to to try and address some of these blockages trying to make these ends connect to each other more what do you think is the role of, of organizations first of all adam like like suez who are if you like at the receiving end of this material and then linda i'll ask you about what you think the role of, of designers and design organizations should be in trying to facilitate or force this dialogue well i'd hate to think we're forcing it colin because i'll get in all sorts of trouble i'm meant to be collaborative and engaging but you know maybe sometimes a good, a good strong nudge is what we need i i, I think you know, my experience, and I'll share a few here because I've got a lot of hats these days. Um, Suez, over the last two years, we put on something like 55 seminars, workshops, brainstorms, where we've gone out and handpicked people from all sorts of different walks and sectors to go, look, the government agenda is shaping up. There's a lot of unknowns, but we need to start talking because otherwise you end up responding to something that's already kind of partially set in stone. So for us, that was about us understanding 
what comes into our sites better, but it was also about understanding how that material might go elsewhere. And it was about getting brands to talk to reprocessors so they understood. And, and actually, the insights we got have really helped us then engage with government in a much more informed way about how you can move forward in a collaborative kind of sense. So I, I would argue that we facilitated that opportunity. We've not forced it, but we've encouraged it. And I think, you know, we're now doing more of that work with the likes of DEFRA and Ink Pen and other trade bodies who represent brands or producers or the supply chain in different ways. So, so I think, yes, there's a lot we can do because we've got clout. I mean, you know, we've got a lot of customers who have been good enough to share some of their time and, and thoughts. And, and I think that's been very valid. But equally, I think IOM3, the Chartered Institute of Waste Management, the you know ICE, some of these big professional bodies have got huge reach because of their membership and the companies and the individuals that you can bring forward on a podcast or on a, on a webinar at, at pretty short notice. And I think... If we start to push similar messages about collaboration, supply chains, innovation, opportunity, I think we've got to talk about it. It's got to be positive. We can't we can't put this in the negative. Then I think we can start to get some very powerful messaging. If you can get, you know, the biggest brands in the UK today all aligning with some of their thinking, saying, well, we need our designers to all go on a, you know, a, a designing for reuse 101 webinar or designing for recyclability brainstorm then i think that's where you'll suddenly see a step change in appreciation and understanding and so i think it is our role to not only continue to make these events and and, and opportunities make them affordable and make them accessible but also to push the message you know through social media in particular about some of the good stuff that's going on and the fact that we want to be collaborative and we want to engage i think you know this is no longer about one brand being better than another and 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 i would argue that series has always had an open door when it comes to our competitors uh you know emr veolia or anybody else we we don't mind them being in the room because we have to work together to get the progress we need just as i think jaguar land rover will work with some of their competitors on making the step changes necessary in their sector so i think once we see that it's bigger than any one of us i think it becomes easy to, to get people on board and it's organizations like yours colin that can help put this in the right shop window and encourage some of those maybe traditionally hard to reach sectors and hard to reach companies to come forward and say, yeah, actually, this is the right thing to do. We can't sit in our isolated bubble anymore. We need to play and we need to learn. And I think you know, it's the switching the ears on and being open to hearing what's going on because none of us know everything that's going on and none of us are, are, are right all the time. Every webinar I go to, uh, every podcast, every, you know, every download session, because I'll pick up something new and I'll go, do you know what? I'm going to go and follow up on that because that's interesting. And I think that's what we need to be doing over the next six, 12, nine, you know, 18 months is making more of this debate and dialogue accessible whilst there's an opportunity to shape the future that we all want to live in. Yeah, well said, Adam. Designers have an appetite, as I said before. They're curious and they certainly would welcome initiatives from big players like yourself, Adam. Uh, A lot of designers are self-employed. They're small companies. They don't necessarily have the reach to or even the funding to find out these things. So I think we have an opportunity now. We have captive audiences at home listening to podcasts and getting information. I think also in 
the new normal, the new economy that's coming is this incredible opportunity. But I think the opportunity is not solely, but really for the younger communities of designers who probably won't know any differently if they're educated to understand these things so that part of design courses automatically have a segment which looks at end of life they need to and they are learning about materials but actually it's not just materials it's actually how things go through the production lines to come out the other end as they do before they're in use and then obviously come to the end of their life. I'm also thinking about what's going to happen to education. And I know the government have been talking recently about new kinds of apprenticeship schemes. And I think it would be great if either the government or big corporations, maybe some of the the big brands would actually look at the kind of apprenticeships which might then bring collaborative thinking to a very young cohort so that they start off their careers engaging with young engineers, designers, people in waste management. There's an opportunity to start again, if you like, in a new way to bring sectors who are typically siloed, if to use the usual word, to not even start their careers being siloed. Yeah, I think that's a really good uh, set of thoughts there. On, on the education point, Linda's raised so so many interesting points there, actually. As somebody that still spends quite a bit of his spare time going into universities and, and giving guest lectures and, you know, supporting MSc students and all sorts of crazy stuff, I, one of the things I found that's really heartening but equally concerning is when I go in at the behest of the university it'll be go and teach on that environmental science course go and do two lectures on you know recycling systems or MRF design at some engineering course and and however much I love doing that it's we're just compartmentalizing the same issues aren't we maybe a few months ago just before lockdown I remember being invited into um Imperial what was interesting was that I'd been invited in by Circular Economy Club London, who are putting on one of those evening events, let's talk about some of the issues and sort of, you know, spark some stuff. And it was that kind of disruptive, you know, kind of agenda that, that Linda talked about. And I'll tell you what, what was fascinating was for the t- for the five engineers sitting to my left, I, I had six, you know, material specialists to my right. There was half a dozen behavioural change people in the middle and a load of MBA students. And it suddenly went bingo. Now, here's a group in university talking amongst themselves about really interesting stuff, stuff that they're going to be working on for the next 20 years. And that's when I thought, universities can do this, but actually it was an external agency, Circular Economy Club, not necessarily Imperial, that had made that facilitation happen. And I think we've got to see more of that. And I think, you know, again, organisations like yours and CIWM and ICE and others can help facilitate that because we're quite good at putting on those collaborative, you know, think pieces where people come in and, and effectively are disruptive because... I'm not from their sector. I think more of that has got to happen. Yeah, I think that's a very good point indeed. It's been a really fascinating conversation. Um, I think we're just about running out of time. Uh, as I said earlier, we've scratched the surface of some of these issues. Uh, we could probably spend another couple of three hours talking amongst ourselves and still not get all the way through it. Is there any closing thought that uh, either of you'd like to leave our listener with? We've probably landed up agreeing that we need to, to work on concept of product right through to the end of the product's life and do it together. I'm, I'm with you, Linda. I, I think co-design 
is going to be absolutely critical going forward. Government have to be an active participant, not not somebody that just sets a framework and says, well, go on in industry, innovate, because actually we'll end up with all sorts of red herrings and unintended consequences and switches of materials, which ultimately don't get to our desired end game, which is, you know, a, a, a cleaner, greener Britain, a more economically productive Britain, a Britain that post-COVID is, is leading the world on so many issues. And, and so therefore, for me, I think, you know, when we've got these opportunities with extended producer responsibility and reforms around government policies, around the environment bill, etc. I think this is the time where we need to say, not only do we want to put a policy framework in place, but we're going to actively help encourage the co-design of what these material flows need to look like. So yes, let's help the you know, the AI and the and the and the, the databases and the, and the passport of materials. Yes, we can we can help fund some of that. We can help nudge it along. But actually, what we need to do is we need to make some decisions about the role of compostables, the role of degradables. We need to make some decisions about single-use other materials, not just single-use plastics. Because if we start with clear policy. And that's collaborative policy, policy that designers have been involved in, brands have been involved in, the waste industry has been involved in. Then what we can do is we can go, right, over the next 10 years, our transition is one from now to, to then. And what we're going to do over that time is build the right infrastructure to manage the materials that are coming in in the way that's right for those materials. And some of that will be to put it round and round and round in refillable packaging. And some of it will be we're going to ban these materials because we can't treat them in the right way without it costing too much energy or or too much other resource. And so I think that co-collaboration, co-design, make some difficult decisions over a 10-year horizon and let's get on with it, to quote Linda, is absolutely where we need to be in the next 18 months. For more information about us, visit iom3.org. Or to keep up to date with our latest news, follow us on social media using at IOM3 on Twitter and at the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining on LinkedIn. If you're interested in our upcoming podcasts or want to get involved, please subscribe to hear more from us through Apple, Google Podcasts or Spotify.